Well, good morning. I tried at the beginning of service, tried again now. It's good that you're here. How about one hearty good morning just to get us going? There you are. Good to see you this morning. We are this week and one more sermon shy of uh, finishing the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know about you, it has been a, uh, it has been a really deeply uh, challenging series for me, just personally studying it and going through it. Uh, it has challenged me. It has, uh, it has brought conviction. It has bought, brought encouragement. Um, it has been a whole lot of fun uh, in a lot of ways for me to study and prepare this. I hope that it has been uh, equally challenging and, uh, and formative for you. But we've got this week, and then we've got one more left. So we're going to be in chapter 7, as Roger just uh, read for us. And remember what we talked about uh, in our previous uh, section, and, and just kind of helping to frame the entire uh, Sermon on the Mount, remember that Jesus is talking about the need for the human heart to be renewed, and he's, he's announced that the kingdom of heaven uh, is here, and he's inviting people into and under God's reign. God is here. He has brought about the renewal of all humanity. The kingdom has arrived in Jesus, and, and the invitation is for all, uh, the broken and the hurting and the outcast to come and be part of it. And Jesus says, uh, as gone through and, and taught about the human heart. He's taught about what the kingdom of God ought to look like and how those who are part of the kingdom ought to uh, live. And then in chapter 7, he's turned to a discussion on the community. Now remember, the people that are sitting here with him are some variation of what we would call disciples, people following him. Uh, up close to him are those that he has, uh, he has called to himself, but there's great crowds that are uh, seated on the hillside. And all of these, for whatever reason, are, uh, have been compelled to and are following Jesus. They are listening to his teaching and they are following him. And he is addressing them and saying, listen, the people that are part of this uh, Jesus community, the people that are going to be part of God's kingdom are supposed to be, and then he talked about prayer. We are supposed to be an asking and seeking and knocking sort of people. And he said that, that, that when we are that sort of people, when we are asking, seeking, knocking people, he gave us two distinct promises. The first was that it, when we are part of God's kingdom and we are asking, when we are seeking, and when we are knocking, that God will never turn us away. That our good and perfect Father will never turn away from us, but in our asking and seeking and knocking, he will always respond. And so the first promise that Jesus gives is that he will always respond to his people when they ask and they seek and they knock. And then the second thing he says, he gives the example of, of, uh, of the Father, uh, the earthly Father, being wicked, giving good gifts to his children. How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? And what he says is, in his second promise, promise is that when we seek the Father, he will respond, and when he responds, it will always be out of his good and perfect nature as our Father. And we talked about last week how Jesus doesn't always tell us exactly what it is that we will receive, but that's not the point. The point is that we are to be asking, seeking, and knocking, that the Father will always respond, and whatever it is that, and however it is that he responds will be for our good because it is out of his goodness. Jesus is then gonna turn in the section that we're reading uh, and going over today, Jesus is gonna turn to warnings. 
And the, the fancy you know, theological term, I guess, for this would be uh, eschatological warnings because Jesus is warning this community of followers and he's, he's basing that warning on the coming end, on the coming judgment. He, is, he, he wants for his people, this, this community, to be focused uh, on what is coming, which is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a repeated theme throughout all of Scripture. The Old uh, Testament is full of it as the Prophets speak of the coming day of the Lord, and it's the day when God will bring about perfect, righteous judgment, and his judgment and his blessing will cover all of creation. Jesus speaks of this day and so gives warning to the community of disciples that live in between the arrival of God's kingdom, the breaking in of God's kingdom, and the coming day of the Lord. And he, he tells this community, there's three things here that I want, to, uh, I want you to think about. Maybe that's where Baptists started doing three-point sermons, is these three warnings. I don't know, but, uh, but Jesus sure does it. He's going to give us three warnings here. Now, as a side note, I want to make this point, and, and then we can, uh, we can move on. But I think that there are often times where we will hear Jesus talked about, and we will hear Jesus talked about as being a great teacher, is that true? Absolutely. Jesus was a brilliant teacher. We will hear Jesus talked about as someone uh, that had really good ideas for the ways that human beings ought to treat one another, that if we would just live by the way of Jesus, that would be really great uh, for everybody. But, uh, and, but we, we can sometimes think of Jesus, and Jesus often, as he's talked about in the world around us, is often talked about as just a, a really good guy with a lot of really good ideas, and they set a pretty good example. But Jesus doesn't place himself there. And, one of, and a really striking moment happens here in verse 23. And I want to go to it now as a tone-setting verse for the, for the whole thing. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I've got some really good ideas. And if you would live by the way that I say, great. Jesus says here in verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus, in this statement, does not place himself as a great teacher. Jesus, in this statement, places himself as the judge as the, as the way in which and the means by which all humanity will be judged and weighed. And Jesus here doesn't just say, doesn't say you'll be weighed by the way that you act. He says that you will be weighed by myself. It's him, it's Jesus that will be there in the day of the Lord that by, and, and by the nature of our relationship with him, our response to him, Jesus will be the one by which all creation is judged. Jesus is not just a man. He is God. And he is the means by which there will be perfect justice and judgment. If we go into the warnings, I want to begin in verse 13. Now this one is really familiar to us. Let's jump into what he says here in verse 13. Jesus says, so whatever you wish, sorry, that's 12, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. Now, in order to understand what he's saying here, we've got to remember what Jesus has been preaching about. I think sometimes we lose sight of the whole trajectory of the message and we grab individual verses. But, li but think about what Jesus has been teaching about all the way from the very beginning in Matthew chapter five. He's been teaching them what it looks like for them to come into the kingdom of God through him. 
He's been teaching them about what the transformation of their heart looks like. He's been teaching them the way their lives will look as they begin to follow him. Jesus has taught them about the nature of their father God. He's talked to them about what having a relationship with him looks like. And Jesus has invited this group into what Jesus calls eternal and abundant life by doing what? By taking on his yoke, by following him. Jesus has offered to this group, come and be my students. Follow me, learn from me, take on my yoke, learn how to live life as it was meant to be lived and let me be your teacher. And I wanna really stress this point because I think sometimes in churches what we hear is that Jesus has invited them to pray a prayer. Jesus has invited them to make a decision. But Jesus has not invited them to pray a prayer. Jesus has not invited them to make a decision. Jesus has invited them to completely cut ties with everything that they were and everything that they are, lay everything down and follow him. They have, he has asked them to make a decision, but that decision has not been about conversion. That decision has been about a whole new life. A whole new life that is, certainly has a moment where it begins, but Jesus is not disconnecting the moment where they begin to follow him from actually following him. See, we do that in church. We split those things up. And we have goals for people to, to be converted, but interestingly enough, our conversion has nothing to do with the life that they actually live after they are converted. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't break these things up. Jesus invites them into following him, and to do that, to be sure, they're probably gonna have to pray a prayer. <laughs> they're probably gonna have to make a decision. There's a, there's a decision to be made for a life that is going to be lived, not a moment. And Jesus has called them into and invited them into that life. So these warnings that he's giving, and I wanna just really stress this, the warnings that he's given are for those, they are intended for those who are already following Jesus. Jesus is not stopping here and then giving a uh, quote unquote sermon on, for evangelism Jesus is talking to a community of people who have cut bait with their own world and their own life and have begun to follow him. He is talking to that community that, that would call themselves followers of Jesus. So what he says when he says enter by the narrow gate and he, and he talks about the, 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 the uh, gate is wide and is easy that leads to destruction. Here's what he's not saying. And I think I hear this taught all the time. But Jesus is not here talking about how to get into heaven. Jesus, isn't just, Jesus is not shifting here and giving, again, a conversion sermon. He's not talking about how to get into heaven. Jesus is not trying to say here how many will be saved. I hear that a lot, too. That what Jesus is talking about here is that there will be, there will be just a few that are saved and there will be a whole lot uh, that, that aren't because the way is narrow versus, versus wide. It's not what Jesus is trying to do here. When we're getting to those places, it's because we're breaking this out of the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is painting a picture of what this life is going to look like when we take on his yoke and begin to follow him. He's giving these followers, these disciples, a description about the way in which they need to live their life in God's kingdom. 
I was trying to think of another way I would, I would, uh, I would describe it, and then I gave up because I thought, well, Jesus does it pretty good here. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try. Most of the time, though, whenever we preach this passage, we highlight the narrowness of the gate. And what we want to say there is we want to say that the gate is narrow, and that means, and that is because, that it's only through Jesus that we are saved. Now look at me in the eyes. (laughs) That is true, okay? That is true. And Jesus makes an explicit statement about that when he says that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. It is true that the narrowness of the gate has to do with the way in which we come into eternal life, and that is one way and one way alone, and that is by placing our faith in Jesus. He is the only one that can save us, and that is absolutely true. But Jesus is not here just talking about the gate. Jesus is not making this point to say the gate is really, really, really narrow, period. He also talks about the way. What Jesus is doing here is he's painting a picture of a journey. He's painting the picture of a way in which we walk that, is also, that also includes the gate. Remember the audience. It's his disciples. And he's saying that there, there is a narrowness of the gate. And the reason that Jesus is speaking about the gate and the way is because what he's trying to communicate to his disciples is an urgent message about a life lived in focus. He's talking to them about a life being lived in the kingdom is a life lived with focus. That a life in the kingdom is not a haphazard life. It's not a life in which we can just continue to do and be about all the things we used to do and be about. Jesus is saying that this is a treacherous walk. This is a narrow road, and if you're not thinking it through, if you're, not, if you're not focused on that next step, if you're not cautious about the way in which you're living, if you're just going through life with this haphazard approach and thinking that doing all the things you used to do is somehow now magically gonna produce Christ-likeness, he's saying you're wrong, and that way of living will lead to destruction, not life. That life in the kingdom takes focus, It takes an awareness of what those next steps are. What is that focus? We might say, wait a minute, okay, well, what is that focus? Well, here's here's where we need to tune in the rest of the sermon. He's already told us. Seek first what? He's already told us the narrow way. The narrow way is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He's already told us what it is that we're to focus on. Jesus is here saying that when we live our lives that way, when the focus is that narrow, be careful that that stays the focus. How many of you have ever gotten distracted in your life following Jesus? Anybody? Anybody ever gotten distracted with a career? Anybody ever gotten distracted with the birth of a child? Anybody ever gotten distracted with a relationship that goes through a rough spot? Anybody ever, anybody ever gotten distracted with that temptation to come after material things? Anybody ever gotten distracted with the temptation to come after status? By point, anybody ever been distracted? Jesus is saying, if you're not careful, you'll get distracted. And if you stay distracted, instead of life, 
which is what I, he didn't say heaven, okay, come to me. He said, instead of the life that you've been intended to live, you will instead live in destruction. But I've intended for you to live life abundantly, to have life abundantly. That's what I came to give to you. And an abundant life is defined by Jesus as seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Do you see it? The narrow is about the focus of the disciples' life. We live as if Jesus is saying, narrow is the gate and wide is the way. As long as you come in through me, do whatever you want. I'm I'm being facetious, but that's the message being preached in churches all over the place right now. We are so focused on conversion that we have lost sight of actually following him. And so we plea with people, come in through Jesus, come in through Jesus, come in through Jesus, without making a mention of the life that is to be lived afterwards. As long as they come in, we're fine with whatever you do. We're fine with however you live because our numbers look really good. Hebrews 4, strive, work to enter his rest. Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Colossians 3, put to death what is earthly in you and seek the things that are above where Christ is. First Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Does that sound to you like narrow is the gate and then do whatever you want? No. What it sounds like to me is that the the authors of scripture are coming back in behind these words of Jesus and going, yes, narrow is the way. (laughs) Be focused. Kids, I just want to apologize. There have been many weeks where you have had a toy and I forget to mention it. And it sits up here and sits in your bag and you're like, what in the world does this mean? I don't know. And it's because it's Pastor Kendall is forgetful and, uh, and it sits here. And I, but I got it today. This is tic-tac-toe. All these pieces are gonna fall out maybe. No, yeah. Oh, there they go. Tic-tac-toe. Why do we put tic-tac-toe in your bag? Tic-tac-toe takes focus. Come on. Anybody ever, anybody ever played tic-tac-toe with a kid and you've been in a hurry and then they beat you? Because what were you not focused, right? Tic-tac-toe makes you think about, okay, what step am I gonna do now? What are the influences around me? Meaning, what is the other person gonna do? I'm thinking it through. I'm thinking about the next step. The point is that this game takes focus. How much more? How much more should walking in the way of Jesus take the focus of our Life. Following Jesus is not going to be easy and it is not going to be haphazard. This is a life where with focus we have to lay down our own agenda. I've never done that by accident. Have any of you? Have any of you just been selfless on accident? No, if it's going to happen for me, I've got to think about it. I've got to pray it through. I've got to ask for the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work in me so that I can lay down what I want for the sake of what is good. Following Jesus is a life where we have to pick up the cross on a daily basis. It's a life where we have to seek first God's kingdom. The point is, life in the kingdom is a life of focus. Jesus moves into the warning on the false prophet. 
verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see it? You see that day of judgment. Verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now let's just get our grounding here in what he's talking about. So a prophet just in general, and the word prophet here, Jesus is not speaking specifically, he's speaking generically about, the, about what a prophet is. A prophet is someone that uh, all throughout scripture was someone that claimed to be speaking on God's behalf. The Bible says that being a, that a prophet is both a role and a gifting. It's a gift that is empowered by the Spirit. It's a role that God calls for people to play, that call, God call, had called in the Old Testament certainly people to, to play. But the point is that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that the prophet brings clarity or direction or future discernment for the benefit of God's covenant people. It's just a general way of speaking about the role of a prophet. And Jesus is saying that not everyone who claims to be speaking on my behalf is actually doing so. Not everyone that throws my name in to whatever direction or clarity or word or whatever it is that they, are, uh, that they are giving, not everyone who claims to be proclaiming the truth is actually doing so. And that some, by nature of them claiming my name, but them having no fruit associated and that not being from me are actually harmful to God's people. He says that they look like sheep, but when they claim my name and claim to speak my word and it's completely detached from me, that instead of being part of this group, they're actually tearing this group apart. They are causing and, and being part of the very destruction that he talked about in the previous warning. So what he's doing here, Jesus is giving the church, he's giving his followers a way of discerning who is it that is actually speaking from God, that is actually speaking by the power of the Spirit, and who isn't? And he gives them a, a, a tool, a discerning tool, and it's the word fruit. Now, if you're hungry this morning, then that may change your mind to a different uh, direction, but Jesus is talking here about fruit, and he goes on this long, uh, this long explanation of where fruit comes from. And the point is that fruit is a way of describing the product of someone's life. The true nature of what someone is inwardly will come out and be produced and it will be evident. Fruit is that evidence of what is going on internally. So Jesus is saying here that just because someone claims to be speaking in my name, he says, be careful Look closely and look for whether or not there is fruit in their life. And we might stop and ask, well, what would that look like? Fruit, that's a hard thing to get our mind around. What, is, what would that look like? Again, don't break this out of the rest of the sermon. What would the fruit of somebody's life look like? It would look a whole lot like the life described in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus has just given them an explanation in Matthew 5 all the way through 6 of what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And fruit would look a whole lot like somebody's life looking like the kind of life that Jesus described in, say, the Beatitudes. It would look like a Sermon on the Mount kind of life. In Galatians 5, Paul picks up this theme of fruit. And Paul says that, look, there's a, there's a list of fruits of the Spirit And what he means is that it is evident when it is the Holy Spirit that is working in and through somebody and the evidence is in what you see. And when it is the Holy Spirit, what you see is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those elements of someone's life are evidence of the interior life where the Holy Spirit lives and dwells and is being given rule and reign in someone's life. And if it is the Holy Spirit working in us, then the visible evidence of that is that list that Paul affirms. And Jesus is saying, look for that. Look for that evidence. Don't just take someone's word. If there's not a genuine representation of Christ-likeness, you should be wary. Why? Go back to the point he just made. Because wide is the way that leads to destruction. And there will be all sorts of people that want to tickle your ears with, you know what, you really don't have to do what Jesus said. (laughs) You can live any old way you want to. And Jesus is saying they will be living according to the way that they are preaching. And if the way that they are living is not according to Christ's likeness, what makes you think that their preaching, you living according to their preaching, will produce Christ's likeness? The point is it hadn't worked for them. Why do you think it's going to work for you? It has not brought about the fruit of the Spirit in their life. You should be wary of what it is that they are saying. He's giving a tool of discernment for this community of followers. Then he moves into the final warning of this section. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, what day? The day of the Lord. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus here is clarifying. Just look at the very beginning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is clarifying here what saying Lord ought to mean. Saying Lord should be synonymous with what? He says it. But the one who does the will of my Father. What is that? He's just said it. It's fruit. The one who does the will of my Father. So saying, Lord, Lord, Jesus doesn't go, is great and there's nothing else. Jesus says that there is the necessity to call him Lord. But if all you do is call him Lord, then all you've done is call him Lord. And in reality, He's not Lord to you at all. Jesus says that calling him Lord means and is inseparable from 
doing the will of the Father, seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's what it means to call Jesus Lord. And what Jesus is saying is just like the prophet, just like the prophet would say what God was quote unquote saying but have no fruit attached to it, Jesus here says that there will be those that act in my name. That, that connect my name to all sorts of different activity. There will be those that act in my name, but they do not know me and are not doing the will of the Father. Truly confessing Jesus as Lord is to know him and to do what he says. Knowing Jesus is Lord is to know him and do what he says. That's the word he uses at the end. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never what? I never knew you. That word know in the Greek is speaking of a relational intimacy. You can use the same word for the way in which a husband and wife share relationship. When Jesus says, I never knew you, what he's, saying to that, what he's saying to this group of disciples is that there will be those that act in and tag on my name, but they do not know me. Be careful. Because the way is narrow. Remember, Jesus is giving a warning. Don't get sucked in with the group that just says my name. Be careful and look for the ones that are actually doing what I say. Look for the fruit in the prophet and the one that acts in my name. Look for the fruit because the way is narrow and you can get sucked out into all sorts of chaos. You have to be careful and weigh and look. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says it clearly, that what our job is, is with the authority of Jesus. He says, all of heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That baptizing them in means to immerse them into relational union with the Trinity. Bring them into the family so that they what? Know me. But that's not where he stops. In verse 20, he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Those are the marching orders that Jesus gives his disciples. It's the very warning that he gives right here in Matthew chapter seven is be careful of those who just use my name but are not about the business of my father. Because those two things are meant to go together. Calling me Lord and living into the will of my Father are supposed to be the same thing. And somehow, somehow, in church and in our culture, we have derived at a place where you can call yourself Christian and it might be that neither one of those things are even true. We, 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 people all the time call themselves Christian and what they mean is that they have a certain morality. Or what they mean is that they're monotheistic. <laughs> or what they mean is that Jesus was a historical figure and had some really good things to say. And in our culture today, that passes as Christian. People report on surveys all the time. That, oh, yep, Christian, checking that box. And that's all they mean is that they believe that there is a God. 
or all they mean is that Jesus taught a really good way to live and he was a historical figure. And nowhere in there is there either the naming of him as Lord or doing what he says. The sad thing is we've let that pass in churches today. Churches are full of people that call themselves Christian and have never called Jesus Lord, nor do they intend to be anything like him. And you know what's terrifying to me about that? That if that's true in our culture, if that's true about churches, you know what's terrifying? Is that the very people that fill these rooms seem to be the kind of people that Jesus is warning his disciples about. Anybody see that? Anybody see that? My fear is that the kinds of people that are filling churches on Sunday, calling themselves Christian without ever naming Jesus as Lord and no intent to do anything about what he said or be anything like him, those are the people that, fill, that are filling church halls. And as I read this text, those seem to be the people that Jesus is warning his genuine, true disciples about. Watch out for them because they have me on their lips, but they don't know me. Following Jesus is not about being monotheistic, though that is included. Following Jesus is about the recognition that I am dead and sinful and disconnected in my relationship with God. And the only way in which I can be healed, forgiven, and renewed is if there is a great act of forgiveness and new life. And the one that has paid that price, that has made that way for that great act of forgiveness is none other than God in the flesh, Jesus, who has spilled his perfect, righteous blood for the forgiveness of my sin and extended to me the offer by his grace that in relationship with him, his blood will wash and cleanse my sin and make me new. But that transaction doesn't happen without me recognizing my idolatry and my sinfulness and laying my life down and bending my knee to him and calling him Lord. And that's just the beginning. <laughs> that's just the gate. And then what it means is that I also intend to live in the way in which Jesus has called me to live. And I've got to learn from him how to do that. And I've got to trust the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives in me to do it. But if those two things aren't true about me, then let me tell you now, I do not believe that you're a Christian. And it doesn't mean I don't love you, but you're not a Christian. And we've got to get really focused, really discerning on what does it mean when we say that we are Christian. It means both that he is Lord and that I intend on being like him. And you're going, wait a minute, this sounds an awful lot like that works righteousness thing I was told to be worried about. Oh, 
We've become so paranoid about that that we've completely thrown out any real noticeable change towards Christ-likeness as what it means to be saved. We treat following him like some haphazard hobby, like something we do with our family on the weekends and only when it's convenient anyway. I'm getting mean, I'm sorry. We preach the gospel, but we don't bear the fruit of the gospel. We call him Lord and do all sorts of things in his name, and yet we don't walk with him in daily intimacy and nearness. And again, we sound a whole lot like the people that he's warning his disciples about. So, I, look, this, this left me pretty wrecked. This left me with a real deep, hard look way down in here. Kendall, what do you mean when you say that he's Lord? That's where I was left. What does that mean? If I'm honest, I think a lot of times for me, I approach it like, whew, got that eternity thing taken care of, feeling good about being on cruise control. Now it's time to get rich or die trying, right? To quote the great theologian 50 Cent. <laughs> Listen, I wanna, be, I wanna be clear. I wanna be really clear here. Jesus isn't looking at them and saying, you guys are really, really trying hard to be like me, but you're not cutting the mustard. Try harder. That's not what's happening here. What he's saying to them is that this life in the kingdom that I've taught you about, that I'm telling you about, you're gonna have to walk this out in a world that is absolutely hostile to everything that I am. You're gonna have to live this out in a hostile world where the ways of the world aren't going to produce the kind of life that I've just told you about. So be careful, stay focused, stay on task, keep lock step with me and watch out for any of those that might with subtle and crafty schemes try to pull you away from being in lock step with me. The response to this sermon should not be, man, I'm a really terrible person, I need to try harder. That's not what Jesus is doing here. The response to this ser sermon ought to be, okay, deep breath, let's focus. Let's focus. Let's think about our approach. Let's think about our habits. Let's think about our disciplines. Let's think about our routines. What is it that we are doing? What does our life Monday through Saturday look like? Believe it or not, it's actually connected to this. Do our habits and disciplines and routines, do they take us in a direction that we're living a life of Jesus that he is describing here would even be possible? Is Christ-likeness even possible the way in which we are living our life? Are we becoming fruit-bearing people because in our day-to-day -day life we are deepening our friendship with Jesus? That's what we're talking about here. And I would just tell you that there is nothing worth keeping in your life that is not moving you closer to him. Regardless of how important it is, there is nothing in your life worth keeping that is not noticeably moving you closer to him. 
Because what Jesus is saying here is it's probably a distraction. It's probably one of those things that's pulling you off of the narrow way. You with me? You guys, it's red on the screen. I'm gonna be done, you stand, okay? Here's the invitation. I think the invitation is just, my goodness. Yeah, you stand, I'm sorry, I did that fast. You get up. (laughs) Man, I'm so sorry. take a really deep breath. Just, we just need to. We just need to take a really deep breath. I think we need to focus. I think we need to focus. What does my life look like? Not not what, is my, what are my little religious things that I sprinkle in. What does my life, the whole of my life, what does it look like? Does it look like a life that is focused on the kingdom of God and his righteousness? There is nothing worth keeping that is not moving you closer to him. There's probably a thousand different answers across the room if I were to ask the question, okay, what are you thinking about? (laughs) But I would just say whatever, treat the thoughts that are in your mind now as a basis for conversation with God. Whatever he's got in your mind right now, whatever you're thinking about, treat it as prayer, bring it before God and ask God, what does next look like? What What does it look like? What are you asking me to do? What are you asking me to lay down? What are you asking me to pick up? What are you inviting me into or out of? And Holy Spirit, we just trust you with that. We trust you with the direction that you are leading us. I ask, uh, God, that people would hear your voice clearly this morning. That they would know that it is you. That they would know that you are good. Remember, you've already told us that when we ask, seek, and knock, we will get what is good. I pray that this morning we are asking, seeking, and knocking. And we thank you for the good that we will receive. In Jesus' name, amen.